0: Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the week of February 25th, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, Sean Carroll talks about his new book, Remarkable Creatures, and we'll also have a brief chat with Katie Palfrey. She's from foundanimals.org, and she'll be talking about a program aimed at trying to develop a non-surgical method for neutering the millions of dogs and cats that each year have operations or add to the overpopulation problem. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. The annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the AAAS, is like a one-stop shopping center for people like me. And for the next few weeks, you'll be hearing interviews that I did from this year's meeting in Chicago from February 12th to the 16th. Sean Carroll was at the meeting. He's an evolutionary biologist at the University of Wisconsin and a terrific writer. His new book, Remarkable Creatures, just came out. We spoke in a lobby at the Convention Hotel. So let's talk about Remarkable Creatures. This is your your newest book. First of all, for anybody who hasn't read Making of the Fittest or Endless Forms, you should go out and read those immediately. Uh, but Remarkable Creatures, what's this What's this latest work of yours for the general audience? This chronicles some of the greatest adventures
1: in 200 years of natural history. So over decades, I had read all sorts of stories about people who had gone out into the wilds and explored the unknown. And I thought that if we could just focus on the central experiences of their lives, I could condense all sorts of stories into just chapter-length tales and put a bunch of them together to sort of show the whole arc of the discovery of the idea of evolution and really where we stand today, right up to very recent things like Neanderthal DNA and the discovery of some recent transitional fossils.
0: Like We think of Darwin as this guy sitting in his house just thinking about things and writing, but as a young man, he was climbing mountains and and swimming rivers and and digging up things and getting dirty and getting sick and doing all kinds of things today that we would find remarkable. And Alfred Russell Wallace spent... Decades out in the field. Twelve years, yeah. So, so
1: Darwin, for example, you think of him. He's a 22 year old kid who goes on a voyage. He thinks it's going to be two years. Less than a year into the voyage, he realizes, uh oh, this is going to be a lot longer than two years. And he writes home, even to his mentor John Henslow, the botanist, and says, "I know not how I'm how I will endure it." but somehow he endured it and and why did he endure it he endured it because of the passion he had for collecting and for exploring the unknown he didn't want to give up the voyage he never knew what was around the next bend or up you know into the next valley or on the next island and all that just sustained him through loneliness constant seasickness um, you know poor physical health malnutrition danger a lot of discomfort i mean he slept in a hammock on the boat underneath a skylight
0: for, you know all the time that he was on that voyage with another guy about 6 inches away.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's pretty cramped quarters on the on those boats.
0: Anybody who's been uh, in the submarine corps will appreciate that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Although his his boat was uh, not
0: as seaworthy as uh,
1: any uh, modern sub. And then Alfred Russell Wallace he went on two expeditions. Well, the second one was caused by the tragedy from the first one. He spent 4 years in the Amazon, and on the way home from the Amazon, where he had not only crates and crates of specimens he collected, but 3 dozen live animals that he hoped to take all the way to the London Zoo, the ship caught fire and sank along with all of his specimens. So Wallace had to decide, well, if do I give it up? I've had this t- near-death experience. He spent 10 days in a lifeboat before he was rescued. And he said, no, I didn't didn't achieve my goal. I want to understand something about the origins of species, and I want to have a collection uh, from these far parts of the world. And out he goes for eight more years, cross island hopping from Singapore to New Guinea, uh, collecting. And he independently comes up with the same idea Darwin did about the evolution of species from really similar evidence. He's seeing a lot of species that are restricted to particular islands. He understands that every species is quite variable in the individuals. So uh, the, the... the voyaging was very critical to opening their eyes to new ways of seeing the world, and they experienced you know, many dramatic and exciting and thrilling moments.
0: So everybody's heard of Darwin, and a lot of people have heard of Wallace. Uh, who else do you talk about in the book that maybe people aren't as familiar with?
1: Uh, well, I think a lot of people. Uh, one of my heroes in the book is, is Charles Walcott. Walcott never finished formal schooling. He grew up uh, during the Civil War, but he loved trilobite collecting in, in upstate New York. He Explain was,
0: what a trilobite is.
1: So a trilobite are these extinct arthropods. You've probably seen them in, in, uh, gift shops or things like that that might specialize in, in fossils. And, uh, shelly creatures with, uh, a very clear segmented, uh, structure. When, they
0: went extinct, uh, in the Permian, but. They look a little like, uh, let's say an, an ancient Greek shield.
1: Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Perfect description of a trilobite. So he was great at collecting those and it, uh, gave him a real passion for, uh, exploring rocks and fossils. And, that eventually led to he was appointed to as uh, a collector for the f- sort of fledgling U.S. Geological Survey, and they sent him out west. Well, this is in the period when the west was wide open. Within a decade after John Wesley Powell's trip through the Grand Canyon, Charles Walcott was out there surveying the Grand Canyon pretty much with himself, a mule, and a cook.
0: Well, well he-, he did have two arms, though, which
1: Powell didn't <laughs> yes, yes, have. He, he had twice the advantage, yeah. So he measured, for example, the... Uh, the mountains from what is now the Grand Staircase uh, in in Utah, all the way to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, an enormous vertical section of rock, collecting fossils all the way. And one of the major discoveries he made was at near the bottom of the Grand Canyon. He found the earliest fossil evidence of life, pre Cambrian life, and this was a huge gap in Darwin's knowledge. Darwin was very much worried. We knew that there was a fossil record in the Cambrian, but what about all that before? Darwin's idea was that complex things came from simple things. Well, where were the simple things? Well, Walcott found the first simple things that predated the Cambrian. But he wasn't done. Now, he was an incredibly reliable, trustworthy soul, so much so that he was wanted in Washington as an advisor to Congress, eventually as director of the U.S. Geological Survey. He was a uh, trusted advisor to presidents. He wound up being advising seven different presidents, and he had a very close relationship with Teddy Roosevelt. And then Walcott was appointed Secretary of the Smithsonian. But it didn't matter what job he held in Washington. Every summer, he went out fossil collecting. Took his family, especially to the American West, to the Canadian Rockies. And at age 59, while director of the Smithsonian, he rode his horse up to Burgess Pass in the Canadian Rockies, way up above the tree line, waiting for the snow to melt. And he found this motherlode of spectacular fossils, what we know as the Burgess Shale, all these uh, animal forms, many of which had not been seen in the fossil record before, soft-bodied forms, that tell us that all sorts of animal diversity existed as early as the Cambrian, more than 500 million years ago. And I think that this combination of his public service in Washington, he advised, for example, presidents on developing the U.S. park system, protecting U.S. national monuments. He, uh, convinced Charles Freer to donate his art. To what became the Freer Gallery of the Smithsonian. He was very instrumental in promoting um, a- aviation in the United States in the fledgling days of aviation. So he knew all the key figures, Langley, Orville, and Wilbur Wright. Um, actually was a-, a principal in getting this organization called uh, NACA, which was the Civil Aviation Authority that 50 years later morphed into being NASA. So he left his mark on many of the American scientific institutions while at the same time being this exceptional paleontologist and geologist. And most people have never heard of him
0: and And just to review, you know he's up there in the Burgess and he's not staying at some four star hotel at night he's in a a little canvas tent making, what, just soup and, and uh, whatever he right. can catch to eat and coming up with some canned food, and that's about it.
1: And it's a family operation. Um, he and his sons, for example, are, are excavating the rock, and his wife is down in the campsite splitting the rock. And they, uh, I think, more than 65,000 specimens made its way back to the Smithsonian, this massive um, collection. But it was something he clearly loved. And this is the characteristic that, that unites all the characters in the stories throughout these the book, is they just were driven by this passion to explore the passion to understand the unknown. And, you know, physical discomfort or, you know, great physical exertion was no obstacle. And uh, these, I think, m- make for very admirable qualities in, in people. And he was also, as I said, he was a steadfast person, so reliable, so sober, so trusted to, you know, the highest offices in the land because he just carried himself with this, you know, gr- this grit and determination, this very businesslike quality he had.
0: It's almost like profiles in courage in evolutionary theory in paleontology right in and, and, and natural history
1: exactly people who were some were single-minded I talk about Eugene Dubois who decided the most important thing anyone could find in the decades right after Darwin was the missing link between apes and humans and he decided he was going to be the one to do it well he was a physician in Amsterdam rising in the ranks and he said to heck with it I'm going to take my wife and my young baby Across the world to find the missing link, and he decided he was going to find it in the Dutch East Indies. He enlisted for an eight-year stint as an army physician so that he would have time to explore the caves and riverbeds of Sumatra and Java in, in the Dutch East Indies. Now, he spends a few years looking, uh, you know, suffering malaria and all sorts of things. But he eventually gathers a pretty reliable group of workmen. And on Java, about four years into this, they find a, a molar a skull cap and a thigh bone of what we call today Homo erectus. It's not only a spectacular discovery, it was against all odds, illustrated by the fact that all sorts of people then followed Dubois to Asia and to Java, and no one found anything for 40 years. So he threw the magic dart at the map of the world and found an ancient hominid uh, against every conceivable
0: odds. You know, I never thought of this before. I'm, I'm sure scholars have written about this. The, the The connection this is what I just thought of the connection between Mendeleev and Darwin. Mendeleev created the periodic table mm-hmm. and understood that there were holes in it he didn 't have the complete knowledge, and so he he thereby let natural scientists know what to look for, what other elements should exist, and they found them and Darwin did the same thing with species he he outlined this whole progression the progression's the a dodgy yeah. word but yeah. this tree and what what they therefore should be looking for like this you know the quote missing link unquote and so this fellow goes out and now knows what to look for and therefore finds it
1: it's a it's a beautiful analogy exactly the origin of species set the agenda darwin was he was pretty angst ridden in writing the origin at the things he didn't have from the fossil record you know as a geologist and a good fossil hunter you know he ached to find these transitional forms but in the next 150 years of paleontology all sorts of transitional forms have been uncovered and we're still uncovering some spectacular ones uh one of the chapters in the uh the book is about this recent finding in the arctic by neil shubin and ted deschler and ferris jenkins this spectacular transition from fish to four-legged land animal exactly right filling part of sort of the periodic table of the fossil record um and and knowing where to look what age rock to look in uh and, of course, a pretty big element of luck.
0: Yeah, luck is always good to have on your side, although the, the famous Louis Pasteur line about uh, chance being, uh, well, what is it
1: again? uh, uh Chance favors the prepared mind. Yeah, you that's have to be it. Ready for it. And these, and of course, the level of preparation in these expeditions today is great. You have a lot more knowledge of the geology of the world. You have satellite phones and things like that. But still, for example, in this Arctic expedition, it was several field seasons under very tough conditions: high winds, cold, polar bear territory. You know, brutal weather, difficult logistics, and expense. High expense these days. But they stuck with it, and they hit pay dirt.
0: I know we're, we're a little short on time, so tell me about what your, what your current research is in the laboratory. And it's in the laboratory. You don't spend a lot of time out in the field. (laughs) I don't have anywhere near the courage these people had. I'll, I'll go as an eco-tourist to some of these places, but,
1: uh, no, I don't have anywhere near the courage of a, of a Wallace or a Walcott. Um, we're trying to understand the evolution of the physical diversity of the animal kingdom. How do, does anatomy evolve? How do body patterns evolve? And we're working on various groups, particularly of insects that exhibit spectacular diversity and trying to understand at the most fundamental level in the DNA what kinds of changes enable the great diversity of patterns to evolve. And the answers we're getting are that um, the the sets of genes that organisms share, especially that animals share, are very similar. But you get diversity of patterns by using these genes in different ways. And what we mean by using them in different ways is turning them on and off in different parts of the body, sort of in different choreography. And we're mapping how that choreography is encoded right down to the DNA level.
0: And what exactly are you doing right now? What
1: exactly we're trying to do is understanding the origin of very complex patterns. So we've solved, I think, simple things like how to draw a stripe and draw a spot on things. And we're now dealing with more complicated patterns. If you think of, for example, butterfly wings and their great geometrical and, and diverse color patterns, we're trying to crack the code of how that has how that's generated, and then how that evolves.
0: And you're, you are literally working with butterflies. We're just about to turn towards butterflies. We're
1: working still with fruit flies, uh, groups, species of fruit flies that have some spectacular wing and body patterns.
0: Very cool. Let me ask you something that that I've always wondered about with you. Now, you you run this world-class research program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, you're raising kids. You write book after book for general audience in addition to research paper after research paper for a lay audience. You love, you know, regular stuff like Bugs Bunny cartoons <laughs> and Mel Brooks movies baseball. And, and baseball. He's a Boston Red Sox fan, but what are you going to do? Hold that against me. <laughs> what? When do you sleep?
1: I sleep pretty, pretty regularly. I, I'm a just, I've had a lot of great luck. I mean, I have a great family. I have I work with fabulous people. I've had incredibly talented motivated people in my lab you know i'm 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 a coach i don't have to do all this by myself you know i i have you have i have great players um in the lab i have longtime staff that with you know artistic and other creative abilities that uh support me um and i uh and i think i enjoy so much of my day that uh you know i don't spend a lot of my time doing things that are that are um unpleasant and uh so i think that keeps my energy up
0: well, in the in the immortal words of Bugs Bunny, last look. <laughs> that's all, folks. The AAAS meeting features a huge exhibit hall with hundreds of booths, hawking products and programs. And that's where I ran into Katie Palfrey, program manager for the Mickelson Prize and grants in reproductive biology. We spoke briefly about her program. Katie, tell me about this effort.
2: Um, at the Michelson Prize and Grants, we are offering $50 million um, in grant money towards a non-surgical sterilization for cats and dogs. And we are also offering $25 million in prize money uh, to whoever comes up with the product.
0: When was this project thought up?
2: Um, in October of this year, we actually of, announced of two thousand eight. Uh, of two thousand eight, uh, we actually announced the prize. Um, our founder, Dr. Gary Michelson, um, has uh, offered to give this money. Uh, this
0: is his personal funds. Yes,
2: this is his personal funds. Um, he founded the Found Animals Foundation, um, and this is our big international uh, outreach project. And we're hoping that we'll have a substantial impact on pet overpopulation and uh, euthanasia in shelters
0: where did he get all that money?
2: Well, he is actually a spinal surgeon and um, he had a lot of success uh, coming up with alternative methods Um, and he got some really great patents and uh, managed to make Quite a bit of money, so. So he
0: he was an MD, not a not a veterinarian.
2: Exactly. and exactly. Uh,
0: But but he's an animal lover, and he decided to invest in this.
2: Yes, he is uh, absolutely an animal lover, um, and he has uh, offered all this money um, towards what we think is a really great um, plan for lowering the euthanasia rates in shelters.
0: And what's the scope of the problem?
2: Um unfortunately, uh millions of animals every year are euthanized in just American shelters and then it can be even worse uh, across the globe. Um so what we're hoping is that um this makes a big impact on that. Um it's it can be up to 8 million animals, cats and dogs, go into shelters every year and about half of those animals are euthanized.
0: And what's been the response in the few months since the announcement? I mean, 25 million bucks is enough to get people to be interested in working on the problem.
2: Absolutely. We've had a fantastic response. Uh, we've received many, many letters of intent. Um, and it's an ongoing process, so we're reviewing on a rolling basis. So if anyone has any ideas uh, for uh, an, a product that could work for this, uh, please go to foundanimals.org and find out more about the grants and the prize and grants. Um, and you can also submit your letter of intent through the website.
0: Are you you, uh, considering people who might have unorthodox backgrounds?
2: We absolutely are. Uh, We think that the uh, answer to this problem could come from any number of areas, so we absolutely look for um, anyone who has a great idea.
0: A lot of human... therapies are tested on animals. Will you be testing this on humans prior to delivering it to dogs and cats?
2: <laughs> that is a fantastic question. We actually have some um, very strict animal welfare guidelines um, that we are uh, including with the grant guidelines um, as people are accepted to submit their grant applications. Um, and so, you know, any animal testing that goes on will be uh, under those very strict animal uh, welfare guidelines.
0: Well, for anybody who's seen the, the problem with feral animals in the country this is a really important project and uh, i wish you the best of luck
2: oh thank you so much
0: for more information just go to foundanimals.org or call 310-566-PETS now it's time to play totally bogus here are four science stories but only three are true see if you know which story is totally bogus story one intelligent design advocate ben stein We'll give the commencement address at the University of Vermont. Story 2, researchers have figured out why our hair turns gray as we age. Story 3, whether you tend to concentrate on bad stuff or on the bright side of life, seems to be under genetic control. And Story 4, the spacecraft Dawn got a gravity assist from the planet Mars that will change Mars's orbit. Time's up. Story 4 is true. The spacecraft Dawn got a big gravity assist from Mars that will send it on its way to the dwarf planet Ceres. Meanwhile, Mars did make a tiny sacrifice, according to our friends at Space.com. 180 million years from now, the red planet will be out of position by about an inch because of Dawn's effect on its orbit. Story 3 is true. People who carry two long alleles on the serotonin transporter gene tend to avoid negative influences and look on the bright side. Those with the short version were more negative. The research appears in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. Story 2 is true. We now know why we gray as we age. You've heard of the peroxide blonde. Well, turns out that hydrogen peroxide also builds up in hair follicles thanks to normal wear and tear. Enough H2O2 and the melanin responsible for color gets blocked. The research appears in the FACIB journal... FASIB is the Federation of American Societies for Experimental Biology. All of which means that story one about intelligent design advocate Ben Stein giving the commencement address at the University of Vermont is totally bogus. Stein was, in fact, invited to give the address, after which the university's president received numerous messages from scientists and parents noting their displeasure in having the anti-evolutionists speak and receive an honorary degree. So the expelled star was expelled. Some will view this as the very censorship that Stein alleges in his crockumentary. The disinvite is, in fact, simply keeping up the university's academic standards. Well, That's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Check out Siam.com for the latest science news, including our blog which this week features my commentary about an interpretation of Darwinian evolution from Howard Stern. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.